Yeah, Memorial Day weekend. Um, I don't know what plans you have, but I know like one of the purposes for Memorial Day set aside uh, in our country is just to stop for a second and remember. And uh, I think it's sometimes uh, interesting to frame something like Memorial Day inside of what God's doing and what He's about. And I think for me, number one, it's, it's the reminder that, you know, I am thankful that we live in the United States. Uh, I've been to a lot of places before, you know. And, um, but one of the means by which things happen here is that people, people died. And I think that's one side of it to stop and think. But I, it was weird. Like, as I was thinking about Memorial Day, I'm also thankful for the day where there's no more wars. I mean, there's going to come a day where King Jesus is finally going to come back and set everything straight. And I'm so thankful for that day that we don't have that anymore because King Jesus is going to be reigning. So don't forget, <clears throat> um, tomorrow is also about the reign of King Jesus, right? Like, he is coming back. No more war, no more pestilence, no more anything. And so anyway... Uh, make sure you, you enjoy yourself on that. On that. So uh, today's also kind of a bittersweet day. Um, uh, a good friend, uh, a pastor, Cornerstone. One of the things I love about Cornerstone is that we're always sending out people from our church. One of the things that makes me sad about Cornerstone is we're always sending people out from our church. And uh, the next one that seems like God's really calling to to go out is uh, Steve Doucette. And so uh, totally. Uh, love him. I'm excited and sad all at once for what God has for him. About six months ago, we sat down in my office and had a conversation where we were just talking back and forth about um, him feeling like God's called him to something different, more of maybe a lead role or, or something like that at a church. And, and so I looked at him, and it was so interesting. That, that weekend before, he had stood in front of the church and just shepherded us in prayer. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, it's weird watching you up on that stage that day. I thought, it's probably time for God to use you in a different way. And so we started talking that way a little bit ago. Um, and just a, a few weeks ago came and said, hey, I, I think it's about time to go. Now, the interesting part is uh, just like Cornerstone always does, uh, Francis set the stage for not knowing where you're going as you're leaving. And Steve's going to follow him. <laughs> and so he doesn't know yet what God has for him, but we're, he's just praying, really want, trying to figure out what the, is the next step for him. Um, but when he preaches in June, we're going to have him up here and Dory, who's just been so instrumental in their ministry. And so you'll hopefully have a chance to come up at that particular point and say hi. They're, I know they're not in this service, but they're going to be roaming around somewhere after the next service. So if you want to just give him a hug and say thank you, I think that would be big because he's, he has been a man that's been used uh, to truly shepherd a lot of people in difficult marriages. Um, you wouldn't believe the amount of marriages that they've, he and Dory have been engaged in and walking them through it is that um, there's a lot of guys that claim to pastor, but Steve's a true shepherd. And so I think guys like that, the Bible says that where honor is due, you're to give him honor. And so with Steve, just love him. Uh, he's cared for our missionaries, um, but uh, he is going to be excellent to figure out what God has for him next. Um, He's obviously been a community pastor here, so if you're somebody that's been on the East and wondering, great, who's going to be walking with me? Well, Steve's done a phenomenal job of equipping and training leaders on the East Side to the point where it looks like Terry and Bill will just be able to kind of take over and walk with the leaders, and so that's been an exciting thing to, to be able to watch, so they'll be uh, doing that. Uh, global ministry, um, he's going to be sticking around long enough to help us transition. We've realized we probably need a full-time person to do global ministry. And so we're starting to look for somebody to kind of help us. Uh, we've realized that we've done a good job caring for our partners, but 
we need that guy that's just going to help us cast vision for what God has for us next. And so uh, that particular thing. And then also uh, he's going to be finalizing the property. He's been working just hard on getting the property to the point where we can sell it. And so he's going to be working on that. He also told me that uh, if, we don't, if it falls through, that uh, he and Dory have agreed to take on the loan. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a shepherd. Way to go. So you could also hug him and thank him just for taking on that loan. I mean, it's like such a huge blessing for us. So. But uh, if we could, I just would love to just pray this morning uh, for he and for Dory and even just thank God for uh, just what uh, the country we live in. Father, thank you. For Stephen Dory, thanks for who they are, who you've crafted them to be. Thanks for the way you've empowered them. You've changed their life, made them different. Thank you so much that you've got something for them next, even though we don't know what it is. Thank you that you're a God that knows what you're doing, even when we don't. And uh, Father, I, I can't wait to see how you're going to use them in this next phase of, of, of the chapter of the life that you've written for them. And, and also, Father, we do just, we thank you for the... Um, for placing us in a place like this where today I can boldly preach the gospel and no one's going to come down on me. Uh, what a privilege it is. And God, we understand the, the means that it took to get there. And so I know that meant uh, a lot of death. But Father, I also just come to you and say I can't wait for the day where there's no more dying and no more wars. And I can't wait for the day that Jesus reigns on his throne. So thank you so much, God. Help us today as, as, we, uh, as we walk through this passage in your precious name. Amen. All right. Well, if you could open your Bibles, uh, we're going to be digging in uh, to 2 Corinthians 5 today. We're going to exit John, and uh, I'm actually really excited about what we're about ready to do. We're going to take just a little bit of a, a kind of a, a detour, and we're going to, one of the things I've realized is I come up here a lot, and we teach the book of John, and we cast vision for where God wants us to go, but rarely do you get to see the heart of the pastors kind of stand up here and say, man, this is my heart. This is what makes my heart beat. And so for the next few weeks, actually, I'm going to bring some different people up to, uh, to, to preach to kind of just lay their heart out. And so like next week, um, we're going to be bringing in uh, Francis. Francis is going to come back, uh, Francis Chan. Uh, for those of you who don't know, because actually I'm finding people that don't know him, uh, two weeks ago, I, I was standing out by the book table, and this guy walks up and he goes, hey, I really like Cornerstone. He goes, but I keep walking back by, who's this lady Francis? And... Uh, <laughs> I almost wanted to record it and say, hey, could you say it one more time? <clears throat> I want to send a text message. But uh, Francis, if you don't know him, uh, was the guy God used to start this church. Just a guy that loves Jesus and uh, a man that was able to really communicate in such a way that, that we understood Jesus in just a plain, simple, powerful way. And that's one of the things I love about him. So he'll be here next week and laying out his heart. Um, so uh, make sure that you're here for that. And then the next week, I'm really excited. We're going to have, I think, possibly Cornerstone's first bilingual service, uh, Terry Earwood's preaching. <laughs> yeah. He's from, he's from Georgia. And uh, so I'm going to be interpreting, so I'm really excited to be able to just share with you what, what God has placed on Terry's heart. Um, so that's big. <laughs> I'll be serious now. Uh, Bill Lucas, I still want to say things about Bill too, but I won't. Uh, Bill is also one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. The following week, he's going to be preaching, laying out his heart. Um, the week after that, uh, I told you Steve would be up here, and so he's going to lay out his heart for, for Cornerstone as he gets ready for what God has for him next. 
And uh, then the next week, our children's pastor, our guy that oversees our children's ministry, Christian, even though he's not like an elder at Cornerstone, uh, he definitely oversees a huge chunk of what we do, and it'll be right after VBS, so we'll let him lay out his heart. And then the, the last service that will be there will be Mike Steinwinder. So I'm not going to be up here. I'll be here for a lot of it. I'm going to be gone a little bit, speaking at some different things and taking a little bit of a, a getaway vacation. But I'm so excited for you to hear these particular guys. But what I want to do this morning and what I'm most excited about is before they come up here and give you their heart, I want to give you my heart. And... Um, I think one of the things I'm excited most about this is that at the end of it, I hope I don't give you my heart. I hope I give you God's heart. I hope that my heart is beating with God, and I hope that I stay in the text so much so that, that you all hear the heart of God and what I believe God wants us to do and to be about. And, and so that's going to be kind of one of my goals. As you know, I've been teaching through the book of John, and I love how this just old dude at the end of his life is looking at a bunch of these young punk pastors and people and going, don't miss Jesus. At all costs, don't miss Jesus. And he wanted to enlarge just this view of Jesus and this image of Jesus because John knew that we always live to our image of Jesus. He knew that. However high or low our image of Jesus is will dictate how we live our life. If we have a high view of Jesus, watch out. If we have a low view of Jesus, oh man, that image of who God is, of who Jesus is, can greatly dictate how we live our lives. And so that's what I want to come at it and do. I want to try, as I, as I kind of work through this, ask, not how did John get this, but today I'm going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, and I want to ask the question, what motivated Paul to do what he did? Because you can't study the life of Paul and realize something must have motivated him beyond anything we can understand because he did what the world would think are dumb things. Man, you can't read 2 Corinthians without getting to this point where he said, look, I was even willing to get to the point where I was beaten, I was robbed, I was shipwrecked, I was uh, whipped with lashes. And you look at his life and go, what in the world? But that at the end of it, what he says is, is what burdens him the most is the church. He even said, all these things I did because I love what God loves. I love the church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be in there. But if you could, let's stand up and read 2 Corinthians 5 together, just in honor of the Lord. And we're going to be in verse 11. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, okay, let me say this. My beautiful assistant again, Greg Burkhart, ladies and gentlemen, um, he has Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, we take the Bible extremely uh, seriously. And so if you don't have one, we'd love to get you one. We believe it's God's word. It's, it's handed down to us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And so if you don't have a Bible, grab it. Also, if you've never used a Bible before, you don't know what you're doing, just look at the person next to you that does know what they're doing and say, hey, dude, I don't know where to look. Because all of us have been there. Or if you want to, go to the table of contents. I remember when I first came to know the Lord, I'm like, we're in the world's hesitations. And I went to, like, oh, there it is, you know. And so anyway, just... We want you to have a Bible to be able to know that. So anyways, look with me in 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and about, excuse me, about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For your, our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Jesus, would you please help me today? Father, I so need you to do a work in my speaking. Um, help me to communicate in a way that is understandable and clear. Um, Father, help me from trying to shuck or jive away from the truth. And Father, I just pray out there that uh, the words would land on open ears and open hearts and, and we would truly be a group of people that because of what we hear today, we live different, we walk different, and we see people different, I beg you. So would you do this powerful work in us through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. In your precious name we pray, amen. All right, sit down, let's get going. Now here's, here's why I chose this passage. What is going on inside of Paul's life at this particular time is he's about 10 years before he's going to die. He's about in his early to mid-50s. He's, uh, he's living in the reality that he's understanding his, his ministry is coming to an end. And he's writing to a church that he's passionate about. He's writing to a church that he probably spent the most time with besides maybe Ephesus. And the church has kind of been deviating and going down weird paths. And Paul is just saying to them, look, before I go, before I'm out of here, before I... I die, I want you to understand what is so important about the church. He even wanted them to understand, you'll see this all throughout First and Second Corinthians, his just passionate love for them. In fact, he uses father language, this, this just way in which you would almost see a dad speaking to his son. And especially the way that he's speaking to him, if you can just imagine a dad looking at a son who's going wayward and just the absolute appeal to him to not go down that path. The dad that's just begging him, son, I see where you're going. I understand it. I've been there. I've done that. Please don't go down that path. The consequences are huge. And this is what Paul's doing with the people in Corinth. He's writing this letter also to help them understand some big things. He wanted them to understand this thing called the new covenant that they, they hadn't really wrapped their minds around. This promise that started way back in the Old Testament that was God in the, in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised that I'm going to give this group of people my spirit. I'm not going to just give them the law in which I'm calling them then to follow me. I'm going to place within them myself to empower them to live different. I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm going to actually cause them to obey in a different way. This new covenant, though, wasn't just about that. It wasn't just about living this life in the way God called us to. The thing about that Paul wants to get to is the new covenant has a promise at the end of it. The new covenant has a promise that while we live in this world and it's tough and it's hard and it's difficult, at the very end of it, he promises, is this amazing reality called the new heavens and the new earth. 
It's a promise that when everything is said and done, the way we live our life in choosing to follow Jesus Christ, when we stand in front of Jesus one day, those of us that chose to follow him, those that chose to believe in him, to come to him by faith, we will not stand in front of Jesus, the judge, and go, ah, I wasted my life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When I stand in front of Jesus one day, those of you that know him and walk with him, the beauty that we will hear from Jesus is that statement, well done, good and faithful servant. And the promise then of entering into the hope that we've all been talking about, this new heavens and this new earth, and we're, and we're not talking about a figment of our imagination or sitting on a cloud. We're talking about living with the King, King Jesus, for eternity when all things are made right. But Paul wanted us to be clear about something, and he tells us this in Ephesians, or 2 Corinthians 5.10. He wants us to understand that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, he is crystal clear here with an understanding that what he means by all of us is that all of us one day will stand in front of Jesus. And that drove Paul. Now, the interesting part about this is whenever we talk about judgment, our culture gets a little queasy, don't they? I was in the, 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 when I was in the hospital, the guy in the bed next to me, we had the curtain drawn between us, and we were having a conversation. And I was kind of trying to explain to him about what I believe in. And the moment that I said to him, started talking about the, the reality that one day Jesus Christ is coming back to judge this world, he said, I quote, I'm done listening now. Part of me wanted to go, well, I'm not done talking. (laughs) But we just hear that, and there's this side of it in which people know that if there really is a returning Jesus that's coming back to judge, a lot of people have a problem, don't they? There are a lot of people that will stand in front of him one day, and while I can't wait to hear the term, well done, good and faithful servant, can you imagine just for a second hearing that phrase, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. See, for Paul, he understood the horror of that day. He believed wholeheartedly, like what it talks about in Revelation 22, when Jesus says, look, behold, I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing recompense with me. I'm bringing judgment with me to repay each one for what he's done. But Paul also understood, and this is key to understand, that when he says he's going to judge us by our works, is what it's talking about there is, is us as Christians understand that we are judged, but the understanding is, is that I come to him by faith. I can come to God by no other way than by faith, but when Jesus Christ comes into me, my faith is not dead. My faith causes works to happen. I am made to be different. And so now all of a sudden when I stand in front of Jesus one day, I'm going to be like Paul was that says, look, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. In fact, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God in me. To the Colossians, he said, you know what, I struggle and I strain and I toil, but it's according to his powerful energy that works within me. So when I stand in front of Jesus one day, my works aren't mine The only works that I stand in front of him are what he has done in me. Because the only way I can come to know him, the Bible promises, is by faith and faith alone. But when I come to him by faith, watch out because faith works. I become a totally new and a different person. Paul understood this in Ephesians 10 when he said, look, we're his workmanship. 
We've been made different. We've been created in Christ Jesus for God, good works which God prepared before him that we would walk in them. But he wanted them to understand clearly, and Paul lived by this, God will judge all people. It drove him. In fact, the word that he uses in verse 11, if you look down in there, it says, therefore, knowing this fear of the Lord, he said, we persuade others. The idea is to make a plea. It's like I talked about that dad that's looking down at his son and just begging his son, son, don't go down that path. That path has within it all kinds of dangers. And Paul said, when I came into Corinth, that's how I talked to you. I talked to you as one that understood the reality that every last one of you that I came in contact with in Corinth were one day going to stand in front of Jesus Christ. And if you stand in front of him thinking that somehow you're going to have an argument into heaven, you are lying to yourself. If you don't know Jesus, you do not want to stand in front of him one day. And I think part of that is is the way we shuck and jive with with fear inside of the church. We kind of try to downplay the fear of God. But that's what Paul's talking about here is fear. He's talking about terror. Probably about 12 years ago, I went backpacking and I went fly fishing up in what's called the Wind Rivers just outside of Yellowstone National Park. I had a phenomenal day. Man, I had my fly rod out and we were catching fish like crazy. High mountain lakes, man, if you can't catch a fish... You're not fishing. I mean, it's just, so we're pulling fish out. And so I'm going around. I'm collecting all the fish from the guys we're with. I'm just going to gut them and clean them. And so uh, that was gross. Sorry. But I just, so I'm, I'm preparing the fish. And as I'm sitting out there, all of a sudden, I see the trees start to shake. And I'm kind of looking over going, what in the world? And I'm standing out. I'm out in the water. I'm probably about 30 feet from my 45, a, a pistol that I had. So I have a pocket knife and a fish. And out of the trees comes a huge grizzly bear. terror. (laughs) And I'm trying to think, what do I do now? (laughs) And if you've ever had those moments of terror, you know what I'm talking about. Everything's going through your mind at once and you just do what? (laughs) All I could think was just throw the fish, just throw the fish. (laughs) Out of nowhere though, I'll never forget this, the guy that I'm with comes and he's like Grizzly Adams, this guy. That's why I went up with him. And he's like pulling out his pistol, you know, and he's like this. And he shoots like two just shots off into the ground. Boom, boom. And the, the bear takes off. But I'm sitting there. If you've ever had it, just. I mean, it was fight or flight. And I was like, I was going to flight, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the scariest thing in the world, though, will be when you stand in front of Jesus one day, if you don't know him, there will be no flight. And I drove Paul. He looked at people differently because of it. He saw the eternality of people, the weight of an eternal hell. Jesus even talked about this in Matthew 10. He said, look, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said, that's who you need to fear. Another place, and turning your Bibles over to the very last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, we learn about that great and last terrible day. In Revelation 20, verse 11, John is standing up there and he's seeing all of this and he's thinking to describe it back to all of us. And he says, then this, in verse 11, I saw a great white throne 
And him who was seated on it, and from his presence, think about this, earth and sky fled away from him. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was, is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Terror. And that's what drove Paul. It's what got him in some ways to do what he did. If you want to know why he was passionate, he understood that that great and terrible day was out in front of him. He had an amazing reality, though, of understanding. You see this in his other writings, of hearing that word, well done. He understood that those of us that stand in front of Jesus, yes, all those things might stand against us, but because our name is written in the book of life, because we have trusted in Jesus, forgiven. Amen. Just to sit there and feel the weight of that, knowing what I have done, but then at that moment to know that my trusting in Jesus Christ 17 years ago has a ramification in the future that when I stand in front of Jesus, everything that I've done, good, no matter what it is, still absolutely pasted over the top of it is, this man knows Jesus forgiven. So it drove him. But he also understood the sheer terror of hearing, I never knew you. And as I've thought through it, the only, only the fear of God leads to not having the fear of God. Only the fear of God leads to not having the fear of God. In other words, once I come to the point where I'm fearful of him, I now live in a phenomenal position that I don't actually have to fear him because I fear him. Weird. <laughs> but when we discount fear, the other thing that hit me is we seldom then sense the seriousness of sin. And I'll tell you what, we shuck and jive with sin, don't we? We kind of toy with it, we play with it. And we forget that the very reason that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge is because of sin. The very thing that, that, that absolutely has, has ripped apart the relationship between us and the Creator has everything to do with the audacity of us to look at God and to shake our fist and say, we're going to do our own thing, we don't care who you are. And every time we shuck and we jive with sin, we toy with it, it hinders this relationship for which Jesus died. Now, I love the fact, and I absolutely am always enamored with the reality, that when I've sinned, I love that I can come back to the Father. And because of the work of Jesus, I can come and I can say, I'm not here to beat myself up. I'm not here to do anything other than just to say, I'm so thankful for your amazing work. Jesus, thank you for that sin that I've just committed being nailed to that tree. But I'll tell you what, we play too much with sin because I think we forget who God is. Because that drove Paul, verse 11, he goes on to say, but what we are is known to God and I hope it's known also to your conscience. 
In other words, even me standing here today, I hope you understand what I'm saying. Paul was saying, I hope you understand what I'm saying. My pleading has everything to do with this reality. I have seen what's going to happen at the end, and it's not good. And the reason that I came into your town pleading with you to understand and to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus is because I have a passionate understanding of what's going to happen, and I don't want you to be standing in front of a holy God as a sinner. I don't want you to be there. So I don't know how you viewed me. I don't know how you saw me. But that was my passionate plea as I came into your town. Not only that, but he was saying to them in essence, because God is so huge, I just didn't fear you. See, the greatest conclusion all of us can come to is like Paul, is that we see Jesus so big that we don't fear people anymore. Because you know the most idiotic things that we do come because we fear people. And Paul is calling him back and saying, no, fear God. Because whatever you're afraid of, it controls you. And if Jesus is who controls you, then amen. But he also went on and he said this. Verse 12, we're not trying to commend ourselves to your to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. He's saying to them, I know there's other people that have come in and they could communicate so much more effectively than we could. They were great. In fact, in Rome at that time, what they had was they would have people that would go to town to town that there were these phenomenal orators. And after a while, some of these orators started realizing, man, this Christian gig is a good thing. If we go in, man, we can bamboozle the people. We can tell them to follow Jesus, and they give us money. And they started coming in and absolutely bamboozling the people, telling them all kinds of things about who Jesus was. And Paul's now writing as this one going, what are you doing? Those people might look good on the outside, and I know they're creating a following, but he's like, no, don't follow them. Stay away from them. Don't go down the path that they're calling you to. Don't be like, like the others. Instead, be like God called David. Don't look on the, on the outside. Look on the inside. Care about what matters the most. He was saying, look, I know my techniques weren't up to par in comparison with these people, and often when I came to you, I, I wasn't a gifted orator, but I know the seriousness of you standing in front of God one day, and they don't. They may talk about this whole thing of Jesus, but they don't understand that. I know it's easier to take pride in their professional rhetoric prowess, and I know you love to brag about their ability to communicate. I know that they've got all the degrees, the letters of recommendation that people are supposed to have. I know that they receive payment for ministry. And I chose not to because I want to stay out of this. I know that they have ethnic or spiritual pedigree. I know they have their experiences that they get caught in. But that's not what I worried about. I worried about, Paul says in other letters, preparing you for the day you stand in front of Jesus. In fact, when he gets to verse 13... He says, if we're we're beside ourselves, it's for God. He's referencing back to 1 Corinthians 14, this idea that that literally that those that that had experiences like speaking in tongues and and different things, that he says, look, sometimes in that they were were beside themselves, but that was in their worship of God. And he even said, look, I had worship with God in that way, but that's not what I rely upon. That's not what I bank on. And I never came in front of you bragging about these incredible experiences that I had with God. I never did it. Instead, he says this, because I cared about you, he says this, if we are in our right mind, it's for you. 
He said, instead, I came in and I communicated to you accurately with truth. I wanted to make sure that you understood everything. I, I wanted to clarify the gospel for you so that at the end of the day, you knew what you were either accepting or rejecting. I opened up God's word. I taught it to you. He says, if you want to boast, verse 14, or, end of verse 13, or the end of verse 12, man, don't boast in the way that these guys can communicate and all this other stuff. Boast in the reality of what God has done in your midst. That's what you boast about. But what's great about this, and the thing I love, it's not just about fear. I think the great problem is, is if all it was was about fear, it would have no joy and a lot of duty. It would be cowering. Or else we just forget about it. I'll never forget, man, my dad loved him so much, but homeboy was strict. Man, I, I loved that about him. He made sure that we dotted I's and crossed T's. We stayed in, the, the, in it, stayed in the good road, and if we ever veered outside of it, he was there, man, to make sure that we got back on the right road. But something happened to me at the end of my first semester in college. I wasn't scared of my dad anymore. I was 700 miles away. It took me a whole semester. Now something greater had to take over. If all of it was was fear, I realized, well, man, if it all is fear of my dad, my dad doesn't have a clue what's going on. But there's a bigger principle to this that now Paul's going to talk about is, is in verse 14, it's not just about fear. Fear is something that he very much focused on, this return of Jesus Christ. But he said, for the love of Christ controls us. That word control is probably not the best word. I think the NIV has it as compel. The idea is, is what it does is it hems us in and, and moves us forward. That's the idea that's used for the control there. Is that fear has a phenomenal capacity to control us. But the thing I love about love is, is love is what drives us. See, out of love, we do crazy things, don't we? Almost 20 years ago, I met this girl named Lisa Marceau, soon to become Lisa Neiswanger. I did crazy things for her. We stayed up late nights and talked. I spent money I didn't have on her. <laughs> Why? Because I started to love her. Something was driving me. Something was compelling me. And in some ways, I don't think I even understood what love was until the first time I had kids. Like, I love my wife in a special and unique way, but kids also kind of conjure up this weird form of love. I'll never forget, it was one of the grossest things that's ever happened to me in my entire life. My daughter, my oldest daughter, is like two years old. She comes around the corner. She says, Daddy, I'm sick. Now, most people say that to me, and I'm like, hey, hey. <laughs> I walk over to my daughter to go pick her up, and as I pick her up, What's weird is, though, and you that are parents understand this, it was gross, but you don't care. 
man, all I'm thinking about now is my poor little girl, and I'm trying to now run her to the toilet, and I'm holding her hair back. And, you know, there's these things that you kick into this love mode because the thing you got to understand about love that he's talking about here, he's not talking about Twitter-pated love. He's not talking about ooey-gooey love. He's talking about sacrificial love. Now, where did it come from? Now, he's about to lay out for us where this particular love came from. Now, watch where it came from. He says this, because we've concluded this, that one, this one, he died for all. Where did it come from? Paul became a man that was blown away that Jesus Christ, though I deserved punishment when I stood in front of him, God in his grace came down and rescued me out of my sin and rescuing me out of my sin did it out of this amazing reality because he loved us. For God so loved the world. And that changed Paul. Now all of a sudden he saw the world differently. He saw from a different perspective. He saw from this avenue now, like Jesus wanted him to, that love is not cheap, it's sacrificial. It's not ooey-gooey. In fact, I can even get to the point, and this is important, I can actually be fearful and do the right things, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if it's out love, it's nothing. You can go through the motions of your walk with Jesus Christ, but if you don't love him at the core of it, you don't know him. Because Jesus isn't just calling us into a fear relationship with the Father. He's calling us into what is intended, an actual relationship with a, as a son and a daughter with God. He's calling us into love. And as Paul grasped that and understood that, that transformed the way he loved people. Not only now did he see them as people that one day would stand in front of God and understood the eternality of human beings, but he understood that God has a passionate love for them deep love for them. And Paul made it up in his mind that God loved me, so therefore whatever God loves, I will love. And it transformed how he lived his life. Not only that, but he adds this statement to it, verse 14, therefore all have died. It's an amazing statement there. See, I love the reality that when I came to know Jesus Christ, the day that I came to him by faith, Todd died. Why? Because when Todd was in control, when Todd was running his life, it was awful. It was terrible. He talks about it in Romans 8. Turn with me over there real quick. This idea of dying. Chapter 8. Look at verse 5. Or six, I'm sorry. I got the right book. Chapter six, look at verse five. Here's what he says to him. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, in other words, if we've joined him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, and I love this, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, the very thing that was separating us from God. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, the life he lives now, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
The beauty of what happened is when I came to know Jesus, I didn't have to live for old dreams and goals like I used to. All of my dreams and goals were about this world and things about this world and making myself as happy and as content as I could in this world. But the moment that I came to know Jesus Christ, sin was dealt with. Suddenly he opened my eyes to this reality. It's not about this world. There's something so much bigger and so much better that God has in store for us. So in other words, it's not that it's a bad thing that we get degrees and buy cars and homes and, and we try to pursue perfect parenting and, and perfect marriages and fortune and fame and status and security. But Jesus is looking at us saying, if all it is for this world, when you stand in front of me, it will mean nothing. In other words, you can get all those things and who cares? Yesterday it was funny and they're actually in this service now, so I feel funny reading it. But a mom wrote this on her Facebook. And by the way, I never read Facebook. Just so you know. I'm a rare Facebooker. But somebody said, get on and check your inbox because I have something for you. And she said this. Housework can wait. My babies want to swim. Her husband writes back, when we get to the other side of eternity, I'm pretty sure we won't be saying, gosh, I didn't get to dust like I wanted to. (laughs) I just sat there for the longest time going, how true. See, what Paul is doing is refashioning their thinking. He's causing them to think, what stuff will you be excited about in eternity? What stuff matters? And at the core of it, what Paul's trying to get them to, and everything that he's moving towards has this idea that what really matters is people. That's what's eternal. See, the problem is we can go through this life and we can do all kinds of things. We can have all kinds of wonderful attributes of who we are. But at the end of it, the biggest question is, is did God transform us? And then did we join him in his love of people? Because, man, you know this. We can get caught so much in life that we forget the reality of people. And I think at the end of it, we don't want to regret having eternal moments with people now. See, the way that I talk with my kids, the way that I raise my kids. Man, last night, I went in and and I just, before my kids went to bed, I was standing over the top of two of them realizing my kids are eternal. They don't know Jesus yet. God, do a work. The thought, I mean, I just was thinking about the thought of my children spending eternity apart from Jesus Christ in hell. And I'm so thankful it's not Todd that changes his kids' hearts. It's God. I sat there over the top of them, just begging them, God, would you do a work in my precious kids' lives? This runs against our culture of self-preservation, doesn't it? This idea of dying to self. See, some of you right now are hearing me going, yeah, who are you to tell me my dreams and my goals? I'm here to tell you, I'm just speaking on behalf of the king. Is that the reality of you is is you think that you're king of this world by the way you operate your life, by the way that you carry things out. And I'm telling you that when you stand in front of Jesus one day, your little goals and dreams are going to seem so shallow and so empty. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, just a couple, maybe a page back for some of you, I don't know, but in 4.16, he talks about this. He says, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, that part of me that's most important, is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all of comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And what he's talking about there is, is that the eternal things are what matter. That's what matters. 
So that means in our lives, as we deal with people, those people are what matter. Now watch where he goes in 5.16. Go down there with me. Here's how he starts to lay this out. He says this. Because of understanding the absolute reality, the fear of the Lord, because of understanding love, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one. What that means is, is that includes not only the people that we love, but the people that we don't love. I'm thinking of all the people that you've thought in your head, imbecile, moron, idiot. See, all of those, James says to us, were created in the image of God, and how dare you say that about them? He says, Paul says, I don't look anymore on the outside. I look on the reality that that human being, no matter who they are, is eternal, created in the image of God, and unless they understand and embrace the gospel, they will spend an eternity apart from him. So I don't look at people that way anymore. He says, in essence, what we start to do is we start to see people through God's eyes, not as annoyances, not as enemies. We have a converted criteria for people now. We look at them different. And the other night, I was, it was funny, I, I pulled out the picture Bible, and I've been reading it here and there to my kids, and we kind of started at the very beginning, we got to the very end, and I thought, you know what, my kids and I need to have a converted criteria moment here tonight. So I looked at my kids, and we just read about the eternal kingdom, everything, you know, that was about uh, Jesus coming back, setting everything straight, and so I looked at my, or not last night, a few nights ago, I looked at my kids, and I said, what do you think about that? My daughter looks back at me, and she goes, huh, I'm hungry. undeterred i'm like no we're gonna have a moment here kids you know so i'm like you know they don't understand me so i got down on my knees and i'm like next to their bed i'm like okay we're gonna have a moment here you little reprobates so i look at my son right in the eyes i go josiah what do you think he kind of looks down at the book looks up at me because he can tell man he better come up with the right answer (laughs) daddy will there be bugs in heaven I thought to myself, we're getting somewhere. (laughs) The reason that I'm going to keep reading that book until they're 17. (laughs) Because I passionately want my kids to know and love Jesus. I live in the correct fear, I believe, that one day they may stand in front of him not knowing Jesus. And so I plead with them. But I live in the reality that my little kids, Jesus loves them so much more than I do. Those kids aren't my kids anyways. They're entrusted to me for a small amount of time for my wife and I to be faithful in their lives. That's it. But everyone that you walk into, that you, that you run into, that you're around, you've got to understand something, that God wants to do something in their life. But not only does now he say, I want you to see People different, but look what he says at the end of of, of verse 16. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He says, not only that, but when I understand correctly this fear-love thing, now I see people differently, but most importantly, I start to see Jesus differently. 
He says, I regard him a different way. I remember when I used to think he was the biggest lie on the planet. In fact, I was trying to kill Christians, Paul says, because of this one, this one that people were following. He couldn't be the Messiah. He was humble and he was meek and he could die. My Messiah couldn't do that. But the moment that Paul was hit in Acts 9 and blinded and brought to his knees and brought to the reality that Jesus is who he said he was, now Paul says, I'm walking the same path as my Savior. Humble, meek. And gentle. Everything changes, he says. But not only now does our view of people change and our view of Jesus change, but look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He paid the price. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. And look at this next part. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and he explains it, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting, here he's going to say it again, to us the message of reconciliation. He says, now, not only do I see people differently, not only do I just see Jesus differently, but now I realize that I'm not just biding my time on this planet waiting for Jesus to come back. I'm not just buying fire insurance for the very end of life so that I don't go to hell and I kind of go to the better alternative heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, is that now all of a sudden I've realized that when Jesus ripped me out of the slave market of sin, made me one of his own, made me beautiful, he now looked at me and said, the very message that I brought to this earth, it's now yours. Carry it on. In the same way that I taught you about reconciliation, you teach others about reconciliation. He's saying to them, look, listen to me. In the same way that I forgave your sins, the people need to understand that they're forgiven. And in fact, he said, one of the greatest ways you're going to communicate God forgiving our sins is those that hate you and spit upon you and treat you awful. You're going to forgive them. Paul, I'm going to use you as a living, walking, breathing example. In fact, the way he says about it is to them in in Acts 9 is, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. Because I want people to understand the amazingness of Jesus. Now, the thing I love about Paul is he doesn't go, okay. (sighs) That's a spoiled kid, isn't it? I love the fact that he goes, all right then, Jesus is inviting me to the greatest thing ever, the gospel of Jesus. He's inviting me in to join him in what he's doing on this planet. I mean, have you ever just stepped back and thought, those of you that have chosen to follow Jesus or that have been brought in and are following Jesus, you are invited in to the greatest mission of all time. Not only that, but Jesus left, gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us and then said, go get him. And he said, not only that, but when I leave, I need to leave here because when I leave, you will do greater things than I've even done. Now, that's incredible. I'll never forget the first time my dad said, son, we're going to go work on the car. And I'm like, no way. I didn't realize my job was to go and grab wrenches and bring them to him while he sat under the car. But I was on the mission with dad. And we fixed the car. Jesus is calling us to this. He's actually looking at all of us in this room to know Jesus is that you are actually here. I've left you here to complete the mission. And we should stand back at times and just go, no way. I get to do this with Jesus? What he started 2,000 years ago, he's now asked me to join him in what he's doing? 
See, I think sometimes it's like, oh, gosh, I had this great little life going on here, and now I'm joining Jesus. What? You know when you stand in front of him one day, and all those times you joined him, you're not going to look at it and go, ah, it stunk. All of a sudden, when you stand in front of him one day, it's going to make sense. Paul says, I see myself differently. In fact, the way he calls himself, look what he calls himself. He calls himself an ambassador. Verse 20 says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Here's the weight of it. God making his appeal through us. We implore you then on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says, can you believe it? I'm this ambassador, and from the king, he handed me, and and because I'm an ambassador, Paul talks about even in other passages that I'm a stranger, I'm an alien, this isn't my world I live in, but God handed off to me this message of reconciliation. He could have handed it to anybody, but he handed it to us, and he says, I want you now as an ambassador to go speak on my behalf. There's been good ambassadors and bad ambassadors. Bad ambassadors are these ones that don't speak for the king. They go into these other lands and they they start to proclaim messages that, that, that are not about the king, but about them wanting to find themselves happy in the world that they live in. But a good ambassador goes into every situation and in grace and in truth and in love explains, thus says the king. We're not here to offer people a treaty. I can tell you this, God did not call us to offer treaty. The good king is calling us to surrender. See, the problem with a treaty is that each country keeps its sovereignty and trades favors with each other. Jesus says, I won't play that game. I'm king. And the beauty of this king is, though, is he's a king that loved this world so much that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's a great king. In fact, the way Paul's talked about it is, is that we don't, God doesn't need to reconcile himself to us. We need to be reconciled to him. He's the one calling out through us, be reconciled to God. So Paul was talking and saying, look, I understand. I speak for the king, and so I say it carefully, and I say it understandably. And one of the reasons that I preach, and I want you to understand, is, is I believe right now I'm speaking on behalf of the king. And he's looking out at all of us and calling us to his mission. I believe he's calling some of you that don't know him to follow him. He's calling you to to deal with stuff now because you don't want to deal with it later. He's calling you in love. He's calling you in grace. He's calling you in truth. But those of you in here that know Jesus, he's calling you to not now just sit around and bide your time till Jesus returns. He's looking at all of us in this room, even those of us that are sitting there going, oh, I just wish Todd would shut up. I'm just calling out to you and saying, no. You're being called to serve with the king. He's a great king, but he doesn't do treaties. He calls for surrender. He finishes this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Everything he's just talked about. Jesus Christ took on all the sin that we deserved so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul lands this monumental statement on him at the very end. He wants him to understand that because of the work of Jesus now, you stand right before God. 
Because I'm in Christ, he talks about. Because you've died with Christ. God no longer sees Todd, this one that is facing the wrath of of God. Now all of a sudden, he sees me because I am enveloped. I'm placed inside of Jesus Christ. And now he sees the son that he loves. He sees Jesus. And everyone that's now in Christ, God sees in that unique way. That's the position that we stand in. That's why God could give us his Holy Spirit without killing us is that now he sees us as these forgiven ones because of the work of Jesus, but that's not it. When he talks about this idea of becoming the righteousness of God, is that people that weren't righteous are being made righteous because God is saying in this statement, this big, bold statement, to become the righteousness of God is to become the example of God to the world. In other words, he's not just calling us to talk well, but he's actually saying, I'm going to transform you and make you different. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And then you all are going to be the example of the world to what I mean by righteousness, what I mean by dealing with sin in your life, what I mean by loving people. In other words, I'm going to put you all on display. I don't know about you. I hear that and I'm like, no Part of it scares me, so I'm so glad we got the Holy Spirit, amen? There's no way of pulling this one off without the Holy Spirit. But on another level, we're involved in the greatest mission of all time. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, because I don't know everybody in here, don't leave here today without dealing with Jesus. I don't want you to be that person that stands in front of him one day and he says, I don't know you. What I want to hear is instead is for him to look at you and to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm not even trying to give you fire insurance here because I'm also calling and looking at you and saying, it's not just about escaping wrath. It's now looking at the king and saying, I I submit to you, good king. Jesus isn't offering you a treaty, but he's offering you to come and to surrender. And today, if you want to surrender, do it today. I know there's others in you in here, man. There's all kinds of sin and stuff in your life that's keeping you from being involved with Jesus, and you know it. And this is my heart. This is my plead for our church is that we would get rid of that stuff. Jesus paved the way so we'd be able to. If you've got sin, man, come deal with it. That's why Jesus Christ died, to pay for that sin. You've got weaknesses and inadequacies. I'm telling you, that's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. Come forward. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe others of you that are sitting here right now, you're going, man, you know what? I know you guys have talked a lot about baptism. And I'm looking at you and saying, don't forget, Jesus didn't come to make a treaty. And if you choose to follow Jesus, he says, come get baptized. So if you haven't been baptized before, today's the day. Two weeks ago, a person asked me, why do you constantly say to our body, to our church, I love you? I want you to understand something. I don't say I love you because I'm a good person. I say I love you because Jesus transformed me. The only heart I have for you, I wish I could tell you, is because I'm such a great guy. The heart I have for this church is because Jesus has given me a heart for this church. And I want to see all of us begin to just have that massive heart because from everything I understand, just in Simi Valley, about 100,000 people, if they were to die tonight, would face an eternity apart from Jesus. We got work to do, amen? But it's good work. It's transforming work. And so that's where Cornerstone's going. That's my heart. I love you all. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for everyone that's here. 
God, teach us what it means to fear. But would you please also teach us what it means to love? God, we don't do that naturally. We need your help. I pray we'd be like Paul. Father, you'd give us a heart for people. You'd give us an enlarged vision of you, and then you'd give us an enlarged vision of ourselves, what you've called us to. That, God, your spirit would empower this church to absolutely just explode into our community with grace and humility and weakness and and truth. That, God, people in here would learn how to interact with believers. That, God, there would be boldness even inside of their families, their friends, their neighbors, all kinds of things, God, not because of anything we've done, but because you've done a work in our life. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for these precious blood-bought ones that know you. God, would you do the supernatural in here of seeing this work, this church transformed in greater and greater ways so that we might be more effective in what you called us to. Please, in your precious name we pray. Amen.